Well, despite the rain, it's good to see everybody that's out here this morning, and uh, I'm glad some of you are feeling better and able to be with us this morning. Others of you are visiting with us, and we're glad you're here. I know we have several people away. Um, I don't know everybody that is away why they're away. I know Greg is away preaching. Greg Sproul is away preaching this morning, so that's why he's not here. Um, Take a look around you, though. Take notice of who's not here, and maybe reach out, uh, and let's make sure everybody's okay. Um, It is probably due to the weather that several are not. Nonetheless, as uh, Tyler just read for us in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, except your righteousness shall exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. This morning I want to talk about the idea of exceptional holiness. And, uh, of course, I put my word back up there. You know that holification, uh, literally sanctification is the proper English word. But sanctification means the process of holifying or making yourself holy. And so that's why I chose to to term it this way. But this morning I want to talk about exceptional holiness. When we begin to look at the Sermon on the Mount, we realize that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount called his disciples, called Christians to be exceptionally holy. I think it's not hard for one to realize, and we've been studying downstairs, the men have, on our monthly Friday night class, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. And when you look at it, you realize that whether it is the Beatitudes and these dispositions that the Lord would have us to be and blesses us for being, or whether it is these various um, restating and and sometimes even going further and deeper, with various things they had heard before. You've heard it has been said. Now I say to you. And he calls us for even a greater commitment to some of these things. Or whether it is just some of the practical things you see in chapters 6 and 7, the praying, the fasting, etc., etc. There is no doubt the Lord calls for Christians to be exceptionally holy. Holy meaning separate, set apart, unique, different from everybody else. He calls us to a higher standard of living, as it were. And yet, a person might say, weakness, I have weakness, be holy in my weakness. You're saying on on the one hand, you're acknowledging that you're weak. How can a weak person be exceptionally holy? Those seem to be diametrically opposed to each other. You can't be weak, one would say, and at the same time be exceptionally holy. Now, can you? And yet we are saying, be holy in my weakness. Well, you see, I've (coughs) answered the question, how can a weak person be exceptionally holy? Well, what is exceptional is beginning and continuing a process, the, the process of becoming more and more holy. Now, I really want you to focus on what I'm saying there for a moment, not because it's me saying it, but just think about what the Lord is calling us to do. Is He calling us to... And let me just give you a couple of scenarios. I think sometimes people idealistically and unrealistically think, when I obey the Gospel, when I go into the waters of baptism, some kind of miracle is going to happen. And I'm going to come up out of that water and I'm going to be an exceptional, exceptionally holy individual. And that's not so. In other words... We, we all realize that when I came up out of the water, 
basically, I know what God says has happened, and there are many advantages and blessings to being a Christian, but I also know, as we said last Sunday, I am basically the person who went in the water. I have the same weaknesses. Sometimes a person looks at that, and we've talked about it, and I'm going to restate it again this morning, and there is the idea, okay, then if there's nothing that's different, let me just go back and continue to live the life I was living before. Obviously, God does not want us to do that. Another person might say, well, I'll just sort of, and I use the word compartmentalize, but I'll just sort of separate my Christianity, it's what I'll do on Sunday, from real life. And that's what I do all the rest of my time, besides the couple hours I check in here. And obviously, that's not what God wants us to do. And some people will really try to be an exceptionally holy individual. Everything about their life, they will try to be holy in that, and they will fail a number of times over and over until they become very frustrated with it, And there will be people who will continue that for a long period of time, and they'll live a very frustrated life. And they will not believe themselves to be exceptionally holy. And if you were to ask them, are you a holy person? Well, no, I'm not. But yet God is calling us to be exceptionally holy. Except your righteousness shall exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Notice what he says, you shall in no case, in no wise even enter into the kingdom of heaven, much less be considered a viable part of it. So what is Jesus saying here? What is realistic? What is possible? And I believe what's possible is that we accept the challenge from the moment we become a child of God, and if we have not done that, at some point we do. That I will more and more and more and more in my life be holy. Yes, even in my weakness, I will be holy. Let me go a little further with some of the things I was saying last week. But I want to start by acknowledging, and I'll go all the way back to the first quarter for just briefly here. You may remember that there were a number, there have been a number of historical attempts, and you remember we looked at four of them. And in all of these cases, They were people who acknowledged. Now, in this quarter, we're talking about be holy in my weakness. And the phrase that Wes came up with from Isaiah 6 and verse 5 was acknowledging my separation from God. Even a Christian. Because one might well ask himself, you might ask yourself, am I as close to God as I could be? And if the answer to that is no, then there's some separation there. And I need to acknowledge it. Well, these groups of people did that. They acknowledged their separation from God and they attempted to come up to a level of exceptional holiness. Now, they approached it in different ways and I'm not going to go all back, you know, back through all of that history. But the idea was to come up to that level of exceptional holiness. However, even though the goal was for each individual in the group, not just a church as a whole or a group as a whole, but each individual to restore a personal holy relationship to God, they realized and recognized that the natural tendency in people, even God's people, is to succumb to their weakness or their weaknesses and be less holy. Now, let me put that into practical terms, and I think you understand what I'm saying. 
The natural tendency of a human being is to give in. There are temptations. We fight them. We struggle with them. We deal with them. But in many cases, we give in to them. We recognize that we have them. We may even come, unfortunately, to accept them. I am weak when it comes to such and such, so and so. I do give in when it comes to such and such, so and so. And the problem with that is, if it reaches a point where I acknowledge and I say, I am weak and I do give in to it, that I begin to say, and that's just me, it's okay. So we want to go a little bit further, because in all of these attempts, notice with the Pharisees, and maybe some of these things are common to you. The Pharisees were a group of people going all the way back to the Egyptian bondage in the Old Testament, and especially during the time of the Grecian occupation, that is, the descendants of Alexander the Great, his generals, his people. But they were being corrupted by the immorality around them. And some of those Jews saw that, recognized that, said to themselves, we're being corrupted by the immorality, we're giving in to it. We're becoming increasingly immoral, and we need to stop that. And so the very word Pharisee means we need to separate, which is what Pharisee means, from all of that. The Amish were a group of people, religious people, who looked at themselves and said, you know what's happening is the world is progressing. Now you have to understand that the whole Renaissance period and all the progression, I mean the printing press was invented, and all of those wonderful things of the late 1400s and into the 1500s, we might think of that as ancient history, but there were a lot of modern things that began in that time. And those people looked around and said, you know, it's a progressive world, and what's happening is religious people are going along with this progressive world, and they were trending toward compliance, compromise. And so they came up with this very rigid way of living. We know the Amish. And the idea was to separate rather than to give in to all of that, quote-unquote, progression. And before you're quick to jump on that, how many times do we hear even godly people saying, well, you know, it is the 21st century as an excuse for what's wrong? As we go further with it, we look at the Wesleys. Now we're looking back about 300 years. And what they found was that even if they were in a seminary, John and Charles Wesley, And several of these young men looked around, even in the seminary, even among people who were supposed to be the preachers and the leaders, and they saw a very undisciplined Christian life in their fellow students and in themselves. And so the idea was, rather than just sort of this haphazard way of living, where we kind of hit at Christianity from time to time and really just accept the, the lack of discipline in our lives, they really set about to live a very diligent, if methodical, and so the whole idea of Methodist and Methodism, but a diligent effort towards serving the Lord. And finally, even among our brethren. Because what our brethren found 40 years ago, and I think what we would admit, is that there is an inordinate focus on baptism. Get them baptized. Be baptized. Has so-and-so been baptized? Are they a baptized believer? Are they a member of the church? And you know... That's important, but it ain't everything. And so when you start focusing on baptism as the be-all, end-all of Christianity, then as our brethren said, and they were right, then you lose the emphasis in the Bible that says baptism is a beginning point, but it's not what a Christian is to be. 
You don't see Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7, for example, spending a hundred verses saying, you need to be baptized. No, he accepts that we understand that from the teaching that will follow. And he understands that that is a beginning point, and this is Christianity. And so our brethren said that the actual process is the whole discipling, is a term they coined, and that is where we learn the ways of the Lord and we live them. We're baptized believers. We've begun that. We've been made a disciple of Jesus Christ through baptism, and now we need to live like an adherent, a follower of Jesus Christ as a disciple. And so we go back to this whole idea of exceptional holiness and we say, well, what does it require? Well, I put up three things last week, and I'm going to embellish that this morning. But let's go back to those three things. It requires, first of all, concession. And that is that you do need to acknowledge. You do need to admit. Let's go a little further. Remember the Man in the Mirror series? I am that man in the mirror. I hope you can see that up in the corner. I see my reflection in the mirror. I know who I am. I'm being honest with myself. I'm facing myself in the mirror. And if you remember all of that and how I talked about all of that, and I kept likening that to me going in and looking in the mirror and seeing that huge, fat guy that needed not to be that. Because you've got to, be, you've got to admit, you've got to be honest, you've got to say, this is not, this is who I am. And I see it. It's not what I need to be. It's not what I want to be. And so, the man in the mirror, no arrogance. No pride. If, we're, if you're still open to Matthew 5, look back at verse 3, and the very first statement Jesus made to that multitude was, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Here's the idea of, if you want to be my disciple, the very first thing you're going to have to do is humble yourself. Or as James 4 and verse 6 and several places in the Bible say, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. God resists the proud but he gives favor to the humble. Blessed are the poor in spirit. No arrogance, no pride. Honesty. And I won't go back and read Psalm 32. I read it last Sunday. But where David said, I acknowledged my transgressions to the Lord. My sin is ever before me. He faced it. When we look at 2 Corinthians, and I'd like for you to do that with me. You look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I've long been impressed with statements made by the Apostle Paul. I read one last Sunday. I want to read another one this morning. Here's the Apostle Paul. And as I said last Sunday, we are at, at the very least 25 years into his Christianity here. He is far closer to the end of his life than the beginning of his life. And yet what Paul says, probably somewhere around my age, Paul will say down in verse 29, he talks about all those persecutions. And we reference this passage for that. We talk about how he was beaten and how he was shipwrecked and how he was in the sea, in the depths of the sea and in prison and on and on. But remember that Paul closed this section by saying in verse 29, besides those things that are without, there comes upon me daily the care of all the churches. And then he asks a question in verse 29, as if to say, and besides all of that, who is weak? And am I not weak? Who is offended? Who stumbles? And do I not burn? And the word for burn here is a word that's used for being tempted sexually. He goes on, verse 30, to say, If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern 
my infirmities. Or some of your translations say, my weaknesses. Why do that? If you're writing all of this and you start off by saying, to paraphrase, I'm going to speak like a fool here. You forced me to do that, but I'm going to. And I'm going to tell you about all my accomplishments and my great victories. In other words, I'm going to tell you how great I am, how strong I am. Why then go into, after saying all of that, as if to say, you know, I'm this and I'm that and I've done this and I've done that and I beat this and I beat that. Why say, who's weak and I'm not? Why say, who stumbles, who sins and I don't? Why say, if I'm going to glory, if I'm going to boast, let me boast of my weaknesses. I think the answer, and I'm not going to get into it, the answer is in what, what he will go on to say in chapter 12, but it is because it is the honesty, it is facing the man in the mirror and seeing the weaknesses of the man in the mirror that starts the process again and again and again and brings you back to being more and more and more holy. And so if you're going to boast of something, don't look at a past victory. It's great. It's wonderful. But if you're going to boast of something, if you're going to talk about something, if you're going to bring it to the forefront, and that's what you do when you boast, you bring it out. And it's out open before everything. Then do that with your weaknesses so you can begin to be even more holy. It's concession. It's an evaluation. If we go look back to the man in the mirror a couple of years ago, remember things like the SWOT analysis? Now, that's a business uh, uh, process, a business tool, in which you look at yourself business-wise, your abilities, your credentials, but the SWOT stands for your strengths, but also your weaknesses. It stands for your opportunities. And it stands for the idea, the whole process looks at the idea of how can I take who I am, honestly, exactly who I am, and focus on being better, greater, utilizing what I have, my talents, etc., the opportunities I have, utilizing all of that to get the most productivity. Well, a Christian needs to look at that. And the only way to have a full SWOT analysis is to acknowledge your weaknesses. Not to be saying, you know, downstairs in the class we were talking about some of this, but in, in a little bit different context. But I said, you know, we all can do things like this. I can reach around and pat myself on the back and say, you know, I haven't broken into a house or stolen anything in X number of years. Okay, great. And it is great. But is that the summation of everything I am and I'm going to be as a Christian? If all I'm looking at is my victory, and that's what Paul was doing here, with the victories. If all I'm looking at is my victories and never facing my weaknesses, then I ain't going anywhere. I'm not getting any better from where I am right now. And that's not what the Lord wants. So it is the idea of doing that analysis, that honest evaluation, that assessment of yourself. Sometimes journaling, it helps to write it down. It helps to revisit your thoughts you had. Weeks ago, days ago, etc., when you were facing it. It helps to go back, it helps to have a mission statement, whether it's written down or not, to know who you are, to know where you're going, to know what you intend to be. You would be amazed that the most successful businesses in the world have a mission statement. 
And they bring it out before their employees all the time. And they live up to it all the time. Check the mission statement, for example. Go online. Look at the mission statement of McDonald's. And why did I bring McDonald's up? Well, McDonald's was at one point the fastest company to a billion dollars worth. Now, that was years and years ago when a billion was something. But then McDonald's, you may remember, here just in a few years ago, everything was slipping. Competition was beating them, etc., etc. Now, I'm not going to get off on McDonald's, but here's the point. Let's revisit our mission statement. Let's look back at what we said, who we are, what we're going to be, and let's live up to it. And now they're up again. That's what a Christian needs to do. A Christian needs to be the kind of person that visits it again and again and again. And that's what Paul is doing here. And if you go home and read the end of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, you will see that's exactly what he's doing. Concession. But let's go further. It requires commitment. When I became a Christian, I I knew I believed in Jesus. He is the Son of God. I confess that. Dale asked me that question. Do you believe? I said I did. But I also understood, though I didn't know much about the whole big term and everything it meant, I knew repentance means you've got to change your life. I looked for the first time spiritually in a mirror. I did that in a hotel room in Andalusia, Alabama. And I said, if you're going to be a Christian, a lot has to change about your life. And I went through it, alone in a bathroom in a little hotel room. I pledged some repentance that day. I said I was going to change some things. Some things I changed immediately. There were things that I had done before that I don't think I've done since obeying the gospel. There are other things that I struggled with and fought for a long time to put them down. Some of those things I did. There are some things I still struggle with. You know, I still can run my mouth, right, Wes? Say something I wish I hadn't said. You know, as soon as you say it, it's like, whoa, come back here! You know, didn't want you to get out. You struggle with it. You face it. You go back and you concede to the fact that, you know what, you need to work a little harder. You commit to the repentance you pledge. You are, James 1, not a forgetful hearer. God says, and you know He does. And no matter what excuses you want to make or anything you want to say about it, God says so-and-so. And I know He does. And I pledged to not forget the things the Lord said. To be different. No acceptance of my weakness. I'm not going to be that man looking in the mirror and saying to myself, that's just the way I am. I would have never become a Christian in the first place if that's the attitude I had. Or to say things like, we're all human, you know. And we are. Everyone us in this room is a human being and we all have our weaknesses. We accept that. We make that concession. But I committed to be better. I committed to change things, to not just say I'm human and I can't help it. Or to say of myself, it's just the devil, you know, the devil makes me do it. If it weren't for the devil, I wouldn't. Well, that's true, you wouldn't. But that's the choice, and that's the glory in the choice. If I must glory, let me glory in my weaknesses. Why? Because it makes me face the fact that what brings glory to God is choosing. Choosing to deal with the weakness. 
It's like Paul saying in Romans 7, what I do, I don't want to do. And Jesus Christ, I count on him for deliverance. But it's also resignation. I was thinking about this term earlier in the week. And resignation can be a very negative term. It's a strange word in the English language because it can be a term that means, you know, you're leaving something. You're officially leaving a position. I resign from this office. I resign my commission in the military, etc. But resignation can also be a very positive term, especially if you're resigning from something that's bad. And that's the idea in Christianity. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, that's resignation. I know whom I have believed. Chapter 1, verse 12 of of 2 Timothy. I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. Those are statements of resignation. It's the act of officially or formally giving up a position. I am not the person I used to be. How many times have you, how many times have I been faced with a temptation and in the moments when I was stronger, in the moments where I said no, in the moments when I said I won't sin, and I didn't, how many times have I said to myself, you are not that person? There was a time when if the thought and the emotion, etc., hit you, you gave in to it. You just went ahead and did whatever it was to do. Steal, hit, hurt, whatever it was, you did all that. But you're not that person anymore. You are a person with Jesus Christ in you, living in you, magnified through you. And that's why a person says no. Not today, not this time. You might get me tomorrow, Satan, but not today and not this time and not this situation. It's resignation. It's giving up where you were and saying, I will be It's diligent submission. I'm going to look at a passage, and I want you to turn over very quickly to James 4, because I'm not spending a lot of time on it this morning, but it is a passage I will come back to over the next four months from time to time. Not every week, but time to time. But I want you to notice this simple process, this simple statement stated in James 4. Look down in verse 6, and you will see where we began. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Read verse 7 with me. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh or near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. And let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Now, that's a powerful passage. It's the idea of submitting diligently so to God. And that may even come down, as we talked about before, to setting goals. And whether that is you setting them in your head of what you intend to do and live up to it, or whether you, like a lot of us, write it down. I have mine written down. I know exactly where I'm supposed to be, when I'm supposed to be there, where I'm going, etc. Setting goals. And then having an orderly plan to implement it. 
Not just a lot of lofty goals, idealistic, you know, I should be this, I know I want to be that someday. But I'm not there. And I really don't have a plan to get there. Christianity needs to be something that in your mind, perhaps even down on paper, you know how you're going to get there. You know how you are going to submit to God, draw near to God, resist the devil, etc. Finally, it is the idea of continuation. And you'll notice the way I put it. Despite past success, and I put that first, or failure. Because, again, it is neither that I'm, boy, you're pretty good. You haven't you know, had a drink in X number of years. Doing good, man. It's not that. But neither is it, I've failed over and over and over and over. What's the use? It's neither thing. It is an individual who is a doer of the Word. As James 1 says, he's a doer of the Word. And what does that mean, even? Well, you know, the Word tells me who I am. It tells me what I'm going to be. It shows me that I am a person who acknowledges, yes, I am weak. Man, if Paul was weak after 25 years, and he probably didn't start Christianity till he was 30 or better, and he was still weak, then who am I to think I won't be? No, I, I am weak. And yet, it's also a Word that tells me But you can be better. And you can be better because God will help you be better. You really are a holy person, and you have been since the day you were baptized into Christ, and you can be. In fact, if you want to be, you can be exceptionally holy. More and more and more. You see, it's ongoing achievement. I failed over and over, a person says. Or compared to other people, people say. Or compared to where I once was. It's none of that. It's Philippians chapters 2 and 3 where the Apostle Paul talks about the idea of God working through you. Work out your own salvation, verse 12. In fear and trembling. I believe that's all the goal setting and everything we do. It is God will work in you and through you. To accomplish what He wants you to accomplish. Your purpose in life, as we talked about last year. But it is also the idea of you holding before you the Word of life. Gazing into it. Living up to it. Being what God wants you to be. And it's chapter 3. Verse 12. I have not yet already attained. But I tell you what I do. Verse 13. Forgetting those things that lie behind. The successes and the failures. I press on. I reach for the high calling. I reach for the prize that's before me. I want what God has to offer. I want that. And I'm going to do what it takes to get it. That's the idea of continuing. And it's measurable advancement. You know, it's a person looking at his life and saying, how do I measure whether or not I'm holy? Well, let me go back to where I started. What is exceptional is becoming more holy throughout life. Now, I want you to hear that the way I mean it. What is not exceptional, and I will even tell you I don't even believe is real, is a person being perfect from the day they get up and they're dripping with water. That's not what God talks about. No, what is exceptional is an individual who says, no matter who I am, no matter what I've been, no matter where I am right now, I am going to be holy. 
I am going to be exceptionally holy because I am never, ever, ever going to settle for where I am. I am not going to become stagnant in my life and say, it's good enough. It's okay if I'm not holy. I'm not going to be one of those people. No, the Bible teaches us, and I want you to turn with me to 1 John 2, and I'm going to close with this passage in 1 John 2. We know the part of it, and we quote the part of it often, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. But I want you to hear how John leads up to that. Start with me in verse 12. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Now, he's writing to Christians. That's a fact. God forgave you of your sins. Go on with me in verse 13. I write unto you, fathers, because, notice, older people, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. Now, verse 14. I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong. Did you catch that? Because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Do you think he wouldn't say it that way? Wouldn't you? You would think that if he's writing this, and he's talking to children that we take to be very young, and young people that we take, probably we would say something like young adults, and fathers that we would take to be older people, that the ones that he would say to them, because you are strong and you've overcome and you're where you need to be and everything's great in your life, we think he'd say it to them. No. Verse 14, I've written unto you young men, not because you will be strong, but because you are. And you've overcome. You know when you overcome the wicked one? You know when you really beat Satan? When he's defeated, it's when there's difference in your life. When your priorities are right. When you look deep down inside you and you answer a very difficult question. What do I want? What do I want to be? Who am I? And when you know, deep down inside, no matter what you've been doing, no matter how other people see you or what they would say about you, you know deep down inside you're dedicated to Jesus, that you love Him. And that somehow, some way, even if it means you're going to fail, and you will, that you are going to be exceptionally holy in your life. You may not understand all of what it's going to take to get there. You may not know the whole process. You may not know what God, what challenges God will bring into your life to help you get there, but you're going to be there. You're strong that point, even though you're still weak. And we're going to talk about that more and more. Are you here this morning? You're not a child of God. You believe in Him, though, like we said, and you're willing to confess that, and you want to change your life. Would you be baptized? Have your sins washed away? Have them forgiven? Just like John was talking about, your sins will be forgiven. And you begin your life in Jesus Christ. Are you here today and you are a child of God, but you know you need to rededicate? You need to recommit? Won't you please come while James leaves?